Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hello and welcome to Borderlines. I'm Stephen Murens. On today's episode, I am joined by Marina Sadai of Sadai Law to discuss different myths about Canada's immigration system. Marina is an immigration lawyer and the past national chair of the Canadian Bar Association Immigration Section a role that she served in from 2018 to 2019. She's also a past provincial chair of the CBABC Immigration Law section. Uh, Marina can be found on Twitter at at Marina Sedai, M-A-R-I-N-A-S-E-D-A-I. Deanna is off today. If you'd like to support the show, please leave a review on iTunes. I can also be reached at stephen.murins at larley.com. S-T-E-V-E-N dot M-E-U-R-R-E-N-S at L-A-R-L-E-E dot C-O-M. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. So you were with CBSA 20 years. Yeah, just about 20 years, yeah. Yeah, and over, I'm just looking at your uh, LinkedIn, it's Border Services Officer, Intelligence Analyst, and Inland Enforcement Officer. And I think a great starting point would actually just be to go chronological and kind of like an overview of your career and what the difference between those three positions are. It's a lot, a lot of difference. It's it's all intertwined after uh, at some point, but it's, it's really different from all three of them, yeah. Um, I, well, I started as a 
student. Um, one summer, I decided to apply for the um, graduate student program on uh, on the Government of Canada website. And they sent me a whole bunch of different uh, options of jobs I could do for the summer. Uh, one of them was with archives. Uh, the other one was with Parks Canada. And then this one showed up as a student customs inspector. I had no idea what that was. So uh, I talked to my dad about it. And that day he's like, well, let me show you. So we were about 45 minutes from the border at the time. We jumped in the car and we drove to the border. And he says, there it is. That's what it is. That's it's really amazing. So you hadn't seen the border before. I had seen it when I was a kid. Yeah. Uh, we had driven through the border when I was younger, but I had really, I had never been on the plane pretty much before that. Wow. I'd never traveled outside of Canada and the United States at the time. So yeah, I kind of had an idea what the customs inspector was, but nope, not really. That's really so, yeah. neat. So when oh, I this... got there. Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. So when I got there, I just, I'm like, oh, that looks interesting. So I decided to apply for that one. I went through the process and they kept me. Is that a summer job when you were in school or were you working part-time? It was a part-time? summer job. Yeah. Uh, well, I started a summer job. I started in the summer of 2000. And um, once the summer got to the end, they decided to keep a few students on weekends after. So all the way through university, I worked as a customs officer, a student customs officer. Yeah. And we've talked about this before on the show, how it was around 2000 in the early 2000s was when it shifted from uh, Citizenship and Immigration Canada doing the border to CBSA becoming its own thing. And you were a border services officer during that time. Did you note it? Like, was it noticeable the shift or how did that actually impact your day to day? Well, if you look the week that we are today, right, September 11th changed everything. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. You were there September 11th. September, September 11, 2001. I, um, I was in university. Uh, I was supposed to go to school that morning. And I got, I got a call at home uh, from my mom. My mom's like, did you see what happened? There's some guy that hit a tower in New York City with a plane. And the first thought that came, that came through my mind was like, well, some guy ran his Cessna into the Empire State Building. And as I turned the TV on, I saw the second tower got hit. And I'm like, oh, my God, what just happened? And it's about 10 minutes later that I got a phone call from uh, one of my uh, superintendents. I was working in La Cole at the time. And the superintendent was like, "Um, what are you doing today? I'm like, well, I'm going to school. She's like, no, you're not. You're coming down to work. So I didn't go to school that day, jumped in my car and drove all the way to the border. It was complete chaos. Everything was closed. Nothing was moving. There was lineups of cars, like crazy. People were outside, didn't know what was happening. Looking at where people trying to walk across the border because they couldn't drive with their cars. We wouldn't let anybody in. And that, that's really where I saw the big shift in, in, the, in what CBSA was. That they, Well, it wasn't even CBSA at the time. It was Canada Customs and Revenue Agency. That's yeah. who I first started working for. And Citizenship and Immigration Canada was doing the immigration part at the border at the time. Uh, two different uniforms, two different groups. Um, but starting after that, after September 11th, we started wearing bulletproof vests. We started checking trunks of every car that would come into Canada 
and make sure that there was nobody hiding in the trunk or no bombs or no anything. Because before that, basically, CCRA was tax collection. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There was more emphasis put on, oh, uh, did you buy more than the $50 you're allowed over 24 hours? Right. Then are you a terrorist? Are you bringing drugs into Canada? Are you an illegal immigrant? Are you trying to smuggle somebody in? And so gradually after this happened, this is how I started seeing the shift. And I think it's December 2003 that CBSE was created. And that's when everything was put together, which is customs and immigration, all the enforcement of immigration at the border and the facilitation and everything went to CBSA. And that's, that's how it really started. That's I, yeah, I was there and I saw it all uh, move from one to the other. Wow. What was the uh, record sharing like then between Canada and the U S because now when Americans enter, it seems like CBSA has automatic access to uh, U S criminal record databases. Was it the same back then? Uh, on the immigration side, it was it was still possible to obtain that information, right? The NCIC network was still available. Yeah. There was still communication between the two countries. But I think that what happened on that day, on September 11th, has reinforced the relationship between the two countries and the will and the way that they wanted to share information with each hmm. other to be better prepared. What was the training that you... what? Like, what kind of training did you receive before you began your work uh, at the border? Um, the big difference when I started than it is now is that I, um, when I was first hired, I was sent to a two-week training in some uh, community hall in the small little town of Lacal with two uh, customs inspector at the time that were just teaching us for two weeks how to do the job. Mm-hmm. Then and from there, say, oh sorry, go ahead. Then from there, we just went. Then it was a an on the job training. So I didn't go to the CBSA college until three years into wow. starting. And what would you say was the overall focus at that time? You're saying that it was very much based on, um, you know, uh, on the customs component, or was it fairly? Um, well, it was, it was completely separated at the time, right? So yeah, the only immigration as a customs inspector you do was primary, was to make sure, well, is this a Canadian citizen? Is it a permanent resident? Or are they visitors? Then the yes. visitors, do they have the proper documentation to come in? Do they have visas? Do they have identification? Yeah. And if not, well, refer them to immigration. And that was right. the end of it, right? So all secondary then would have been referred. Yeah, and the big difference at the time was that American citizens could travel on driver's license. Right. You didn't see as many right. when you saw a passport it's because this was someone that was from a different country. Yeah. And in terms of the contingent that you were hired with at that time, was was the other were the other officers that you were hired with similar to you in terms of that demographic, like sort of young, m- many of them people that were in school or recently out of school um, with a similar level of experience? Well, who I came in with was it was a, a student program through the government right. of Canada. So everybody was in university. That's yeah. right. The uh, founding lawyer at this firm did that program. And he was also yeah. a student, uh, CBSA summer student. But yeah. that was yeah. way before it was CBSA. Yeah, yes, I definitely remember that when there was just like everybody at the border seemed like they were a summer student just doing their summer job. Oh, in the summer? Yeah, everybody. Everybody was, was a summer student. 
because they would rehire you the year after and the year after as long as your uh, your degree was going on right so but it was people from any kind of different uh backgrounds Uh, Mm -hmm. i was in communications in university Um, my best friend who i met there we were still best friends today uh, was uh, in physiotherapy Um, a whole bunch of different and pretty much the only thing we had in common everybody is that we were bilingual french and english right that's about it and in terms of the screening like did you have to do all sorts of the public service exams and all of that sort of yeah, there thing? was a uh, there was a written exam that i had to do uh, i had to go through an interview um funny part about the interview is that i almost never got a job with ccra because i showed up three and a half hours late for my interview <laughs> um what i got is that um, i was supposed to go on a certain day and then they rescheduled it for the week after but in my head, I took it that it was at the same time that it was originally scheduled. So I showed up at the interview at four o'clock yeah. and the security guard at the entrance like, no, you were scheduled for one. I'm like, oh my God, what am I going to do? This <laughs> so he's like, well, let's just wait and we'll see. And so I just sat there and then this guy showed up and he's like, oh yeah. He's like, we, we thought you got lost. I, we didn't know where that little, uh, that the name of my little town was Maple Grove. He's like, we didn't know where Maple Grove was. We thought we got lost. You got lost. And I'm like, yeah. no, I didn't get lost. This is my story. He's like, oh, okay, well, let me see if I can help you out. But it's kind of too late. Everybody's gone for now. So we'll, okay. we'll give you a shout back. Yeah. So yeah. I walked away from the office with my head between my legs. And I'm like, oh my God, I just missed it. Okay. And I got a call well, back. Yeah, go ahead. I, I was just interested in pivoting back to, to the kind of, um, the reorientation of the department around 9-11. And um, I mean, you've talked about how you saw a big shift. So I'm interested in, in first of all, how you saw the culture shifting, but also what retraining happened at that time, um, you know, once, once, the, once the department was realigned under the new pillars. Well, when I first uh, when I first started, uh, the only couple pair of handcuffs we had in the office were locked in the superintendent's office. And gradually, everybody started having handcuffs, right? So first, the first thing that showed up as far as training is concerned was the use of force training. Mm. That everybody had to go uh, to the, C- the CCRA, CBS, CBSA college and do the use of force training. Do the officer's power training because with with the use of force came the part where um, officers could now uh, execute warrants. They could arrest people for uh, drunk driving and a couple of things at the time. So that, that was a big uh, step forward. And for me being new there, being 22 or 21 at the time, it wasn't that much of a deal. But for some of my colleagues who had been doing this for 25 years already, 30 years already, to go from a pure tax collector that every, to anything you carry at your belt is a couple of stamps to go to adding a baton and pepper spray and handcuffs and notepad because you and a whole bunch of things like this. That was, I think that was more of a, a scare and a shift for people who had been there for a long time than, than me and the new guys, right? Me and yeah. the new guys, we... Uh, we saw how everything was shifting. We saw everything was changing. For them, they've been doing their, their job forever with nothing. So they, they, they didn't see really the need of having uh, this baton or this uh, 
pepper spray attached to their belt and which made them a target to people who wanted to cause harm, right? Because the mm-hmm. poor little student who carries nothing, he's no threat to you if you're trying to smuggle something across the border. But the other guy next to him that carries some sort of a weapon, yeah, no, that that opened that opened a few eyes. Uh, let me, yeah. And the arming initiative began what two thousand six seven two thousand and seven I think yeah two thousand seven yeah yeah which was when so you then in two thousand seven became went from being a border services officer to an intelligence analyst in Montreal yeah um, do you want to just describe what what does an intelligence analyst for CBSA do? So basically, um, intelligence for CBSA is split in two parts. There's the intelligence officer that will collect the information. Yeah. And the intelligence analyst that will get the information from the officer, put it all together and make sense of it. What type of information are we talking? Is this like information for visa filing or people who might be be in Canada? It could be for, if you talk about immigration, it could be for smuggling rings. It could Mm. be for uh, documentation. It could be for a bunch of things like this. In regards to customs, it's uh, drug importation, firearms importation, tobacco importation. And different uh, different aspects like this, so it, it, it had a broad range of um, of things to do that were completely different. Uh, as an analyst, I worked on projects that were related to uh, smuggling of uh, money into Canada, laundering money into Canada. I yeah. also had cases where it was um, outlaw motorcycle gangs. Mm-hmm. I also so is this like on, you're looking at like port of entry officer notes and like determining trends or themes, yeah. that type of thing? Yeah. Yeah, that could be something like that. Or it could be source information uh-huh. that would come in and you would have to just go through it and see what can be used, what can be created in some sort of a document that could be presented to border services officers to help them do their job better. So for the first five years, it sounds like you were working at a port of entry. And then after that, you were doing more of the analytics work and um, and doing in, in sort of more intelligence where yeah. uh, and perhaps you were receiving um, intelligence reports from other partner agencies, I would imagine, like from yep, RCMP no, for, yeah, perhaps and for um, um, you know, from other sources of information and then um, uh, and then feeding that information perhaps to border border services, but not not strictly working at the ground level um, as a border officer. Yeah, no, that's correct. Yeah, that's, okay, that's what it. it was as an intelligence analyst. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Understood. And is that a common just so then you go from that to inland enforcement officer? Is that a common like in between between being a border services officer and an inland enforcement officer? No, actually, the intelligence analyst is a higher level than a um, inland enforcement officer, if you regard in pay grade. Oh, mm-hmm. so yeah, that makes sense. so yeah. basically, I, I got the intelligence analyst job on a uh, temporary basis. It lasted two years. It was supposed to be four months to start. Yeah, and after the two years, they um, they decided to cut down on positions. So I was sent back to the port of entry. Okay, but at the but the, at the time, I was able to um, to make contacts with a whole bunch of people within inline enforcement because I worked uh, a couple of immigration files, mm. and that's how the door opened for me with uh, with inline enforcement. Right. That I got to meet a few people and uh, 
I had a few friends who I played hockey with who were in line enforcement officers that knew me and that uh, when some openings were came about, they just reached out to me and say, hey, you should apply for this. And so maybe explain for, for the listeners what the inland enforcement officer positions involve. So the inland enforcement uh, officer position, it's, it, the word says it's enforcement. So the main part of the job is to enforce the Immigration and Refugee Protection Act. Mm-hmm. So in, in layman terms is going after individuals in Canada who should not be in Canada, who are illegal in Canada, or who will commit crimes and or breach some parts of the Immigration Act in Canada. Mm-hmm. And from there, to take action on the file in regards to reporting, in regards to deporting, or in regards to just issuing warnings. But if I'm not mistaken, by the time that the case ends up with an inland enforcement officer, the investigation has essentially concluded. Am I right? Like it's no, already not necessarily. Been... Oh, not necessarily. Okay. No, there's times it will be because there's investigations that will be done at the port of entry and be sent to right. inland enforcement. Right. But inland enforcement is split up in two groups. There's the investigations part and there's the removals part. Okay. And you were so, part of the removal section or you were part of the investigation? I worked both, uh, but mainly removals. Okay. Uh, when I was in Montreal, I was only removals. Okay. Uh, Montreal was a way bigger office than Calgary was. There was probably 60 officers at the time in Montreal. Mm-hmm. So uh, my squad was removals, and I, that's pretty much what I did. Right. When I got to Calgary, it's more all together. There's smaller office. About, there was about 15 officers, and you do a little bit of everything. So okay. it's kind of proportional to the population of the city, the size of the two offices? or. <sighs> Well, I don't know. Uh, Montreal probably has three times the population of Calgary, and, and they had four times. Yeah, they had yeah they had four or five times the number of officers. Yeah, that would uh, that would make sense. Is it just there's more work in Montreal, or no? There's well, I think I think the I think Calgary grew up really fast, and the mm. government of Canada didn't realize that, and didn't grow the workforce that they had on the ground here in Calgary. And we're playing, they've been playing catch up ever since then. I see. So I understand pretty clearly what the removals officers do. Um, You know, and in my experience, they're the ones that are like, oh, hey, there's a warrant out or, you know, you're now removal ready and we're going to make arrangements for your removal to your country of citizenship, that sort of thing. Um, But maybe you can just help us understand a little bit what the investigations officer, inland, remo- in, in man- inland enforcement officers do? What's the day-to-day uh, work there? Uh, well, the investigations part, when you say uh, there's a warrant, well, investigations officer will go after warrants. They will be the ones in, um, executing those warrants. Right. Uh, investigation oh, officer right. will okay. build. So what they will do is that they will build a file before it's reported. Okay. Uh, before... Uh, removal order is issued and once the removal order is issued they'll be transferred to removals okay i see maybe i'm like i always thought in vancouver because when i would say go with someone to cbsa they're taking notes to determine whether say they work without authorization depending on you know uh the result of the investigation it was the same officer who would issue the removal order and i guess in my case uh, clients voluntarily departed Canada, but then 
So is there a separate group that just like when you say removals, is that the like people who are escorting on the plane or is Vancouver unique in that one officer may do both the investigation and the writing of the report? No, one officer may do uh, everything in one file. It's entirely possible. Yeah. Yeah. But they it's, usually and, do now have um, the officer who prepares the the report, executes the warrant, and then they will still transfer it to a removals officer who will correct. make like they a do flight have itinerary. Some, some officers that like, are more specialized, specialized yeah. in different parts. Yeah. But uh, it, like in Calgary, I did everything. I did yeah. reports. I did removals. I did escorts. I did everything. Yeah. I think now they've articulated it more because of COVID because the removals process is more complicated because they have to arrange testing and itineraries and all this kind of stuff. So I think that they have started doing the, you know, the, the investigative and the, the removals yeah. officer have, have split off again, even in Vancouver. So, um, okay. So that makes sense. I think I understand the distinction now. On the investigation side, what's the average, like, at any given moment, what's the average number of files that you're working on? Like, would you say it's under, like, would you think it's understaffed, overstaffed, um, like, the the different off, I guess? Absolutely understaffed. Understaffed, yeah. Um, There was a a review of caseload in Calgary that was done when I first got here, maybe to a 2015 that said that if Calgary wanted to get rid of their backlog of files, they needed to hire 75 officers full-time for one year without any new cases coming in. Hmm. Right. And what determines case load? Is it just like, would a case be everything from a tip that someone might be say working without authorization to someone with a criminal record that needs to be removed to unenforced removal orders? Like what gets encompassed in there? Well, it, it's, it's all of this, right? The, yeah. the, the caseload is all of it, right? It depends on what the flavor of the day is, I would say. It depends on what is going on, right? Someone, uh, if uh, Calgary police will arrest someone and catches a warrant, regardless of the reason of the warrant, it's a priority to action on it. Um, of course, uh, they, there's files who are prioritized over others. I right. will say that back then, criminals and uh, organized crime and terrorism and war crimes were prioritized over uh, working illegally. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it depends on what shows up that day and how uh, and what the case is and how it needs to be, uh, to be taken care of. How much autonomy... Yeah. Do you did you have over what you were working on on a given day? Like, does as do people work individually? Is it top down? Is it like almost like you'd see in TV where there's you know everyone sitting in a room and someone at the front says, "Here's what we're focusing on today." Um, like, how did the day to day like setting priorities for the day go? Files were assigned by the managers of different sections to officers, yeah, and it was pretty much you. Uh, you manage your own time. You take care of your files. They need to be done. But if something shows up, you can have to drop everything off and just have to go do something else. Yeah. It, it was not something that was set that every day we'd walk in and have a plan. No. Every day you'd walk in, get to your desk and have a look at what you need to do and try to uh, move forward on a couple of files 
until somebody else shows up, something else shows up, something else happened. You have to start over. Yeah. But do you have, as a, as an inland enforcement officer, do you have a fair bit of autonomy in terms of like, is, is your manager going to tell you how you have to handle your file or yeah. so you, you print like the, the, the officer has a fair, um, and I mean, part of this is, I know that as practitioners, we saw a very dramatic shift in terms of how inland officers treated their files. Um, I wish I could remember what year it was when the language of the act changed so that it didn't say that enforcement had to occur as soon as reasonably practiceable into that the enforcement had to occur as soon as possible. I think it was and 2013 that, as the faster removal of uh, foreign criminals. Foreign act. criminals, yes. And that, it, I mean, even though that was the name of the act, the language applies equally to everyone, whether or not they were a criminal or not. Um, and so um, so I think that, that that sort of goes to my question around discretion and how much people were being managed, because I know that that, that mandate to remove as soon as possible um, you know, is something that we do hear a lot from inland officers. So I think that this goes to my question about like how much discretion does an inland officer truly have in terms of, um, in terms of, you know, how they're going to manage their files. Um, anyways, I'm just, I'm wondering what your thoughts are about that. Well, I don't think there's a, um, so when a file was assigned to me, there was no timeline that was set with the file. Mm-hmm. Uh, unless it was a detained case. In case of detention, there's there's something at the end of the, at the end of it, right? There's a right. 48 hours detention review. There's a seven day right. detention review. There's a possible long term detention. So in those cases, the priority would be put on it, to, and there was more pressure that was put on the officer to to act on it as soon as possible. Of course. Uh, in regards to other files, um, as I mentioned earlier, you could be sitting at your desk and working on a file and trying to advance it but then get a call from the police and there's a warrant that comes out and everything needs to be dropped and you start over and you have to go. And now this file becomes a detained case, which takes priority over the other file that you work. So in regards to autonomy, I've never really had, I've never really been pushed much by higher management, except on very specific cases, right? Where it was of media attention or it was something that was a priority, right? But no, there was not much oversight or oversight might not be the word, but the not much control from the higher management on the timeline of how this yeah. needs to be acted upon. So there wasn't an environment of micromanagement, essentially. No, I, I've never really seen that. No. So like one um, file that I worked on was uh, was for a failed refugee claimant. And a Canada Border Services officer told my client that he was going to grant deferral. We should talk about deferral more because that was mm-hmm. probably yeah. the bulk of questions that we got. But then the um, CBSA officer said that he would grant the referral. I can't remember how long it was supposed to be for. He the left deferral? the room, the deferral. Yeah, mm-hmm. he left the room, came back in about five minutes later and said, you know what? I really wanted to grant that referral, but my supervisor just said no. And I don't want to do this, but I, I ha- you have to go now. And I can't grant the referral. And I remember sitting there thinking, well, just wondering what actually like does go on in terms of like, 
did that is that something you would have seen or is that maybe an officer kind of punting not the actual decision but like I don't want to say making up that a supervisor said it but like yeah I guess not making I don't know a better word to use than making up but to kind of deflect like I guess my the clients any feelings that my client felt from the officer towards you know this mate the middle the, the supervisor yeah I can't say if that was the plan or whatever um I all I can say is that in regards to decisions an officer make most of the time they'll go and run it through their supervisor just to say here this is what I got this is what I'm thinking yeah um, are you okay with it right but there's no official process in the deferral request. There's no official process that the officer that receives a deferral request has to make an opinion, bring it to his supervisor, and supervisor has to approve it. Yeah. It's not like if you uh, talk about procedural fairness letters and referral to an admissible hearing for permanent residence, which has to go through the, the, managers, uh, the manager after recommendation from an officer in deferral. I, I did probably 200 deferral requests in my career. Uh-huh. And I, it was my own, it was me. Uh-huh. And is that just an organizational culture thing, whether that individual officer would feel comfortable not ignoring their supervisor, but if the supervisor says, I'm not, I think you should do this. Like how common is it that, a, you know, an officer would say, well, actually I want to go this way just from like an organizational behavior. Like It, it was also, it was always a conversation, right? To yeah. me, I, I, it was always a conversation. I'd go to my manager or supervisor and say, hey, here's what I think. Here's what the case is. And what do you think? And then he, he or she would put forward what their thoughts are. And we'd have a conversation. But to have a decision overturned didn't happen to me very often. Yeah. In certain occasions, it might have. But it didn't really happen very often. It might have been also that in my life, late years in Calgary, um, the manager of the removals uh, side didn't really know anything about the parole request because he had never done any. Yeah. So he would rely on the officer's experience in order to do so. The thing about deferral requests is, I mean, in my experience, um, is that I think that, you know, in dealing with clients, I would say, Clients sometimes don't appreciate that a deferral can't be indefinite. You know, you can't just seek a deferral because you don't want to go home. Yeah. And so, um, and so I think when a deferral request is made and it's a deferral request for a discrete period of time, it's obviously going to be far more palatable to an inland enforcement officer. So to say, I don't want to go home because I don't want to go home obviously is not it's not a reasonable or realistic deferral request. But if you're, um, for example, if you're a failed refugee claimant and you have a pending spousal application and that application has been pending for 10 months and you have some reasonable expectation that the spousal application is going to be approved in three or four more months and you've already put in a request to IRCC, like then you can make a discreet and, um, you know, a deferral request that has like a specific time frame around it, you know? And so um, the, the, the concern and confusion that I get is when a discreet 
deferral request is made for a specific period of time and those deferral requests come back without any um, without any success. Because in those situations, you know, we're taught, especially in the pandemic, you know, and, you know, you're finding now somebody's going to have to make an ARC application and they're, you know, they're making an ARC application, perhaps in a country where there's no visa office, there's no ability to get biometrics, they don't, you know, it's not, um, they're in a more negative situation with respect to COVID. And um, like Steve says, sometimes we get a lot of sort of um, very vague answers in terms of why the deferral is unacceptable, like, you know, that, um, no, it's, um, you know, you've had enough time to understand that this, um, that this removal order is going to be executed. You know, I think that it would be helpful, I think, for us and for, um, for, um, for our listeners to understand what types of things get considered in those backroom conversations as to why a deferral request may or, or may not be acceptable under those circumstances. When we know that there's every likelihood that that application is going to be approved and the person is going to come back, but they might be separated from their spouse for like another year because of the fact that they're going to have to make an ARC application that may or may not be successful. And actually, I think you, so, I mean, we should mention that you, and I will in the intro to this podcast mention that you actually help both individuals, lawyers, and consultants prepare um, deferral of removal requests. And also, I think A44, I don't know what to call them, do not do A44 requests. Um, so what, what do you see as like the top things that uh, lawyers, consultants, individuals are, are either not doing or should know when they're making mm. these requests? Well, yeah, that, that's one thing I, that I've started doing when I have CBSA is I opened up to, uh, to lawyers and consultants to give uh, another perspective to their files. Mm. Um, and one thing I always, I, I always see when I consult like on deferral requests is that as an officer, what, what I wanted to see is that I wanted, I wanted it to be clear what you were requesting. Yeah. If there was any ambiguity in the request, then there was a way better chance that it was not going to be granted, right? right? If, uh, if there was a specific time in regards to it and it was justified by facts behind it on why you, the individual wanted the deferral request, um, this would have more consideration. But if there was an underlying there that, okay, you're requesting three weeks for a specific reason, but then in three weeks, something else happens. So that's going to delay the removal even more. And then delaying the removal even more will lead to something else that might delay it even more. Then it comes to what we what we were saying, Dan, earlier is that it's it, it can become indefinite at one point. Yeah, exactly. And that for the officer, it's impossible to grant an indefinite uh, deferral of removal. Mm-hmm. It's um, I always said to lawyers or clients at the time is like. I have very limited discretion as an officer as to reasons why and time on which I can um, defer a removal, right? In a situation where is there a travel document that's valid on file and then uh, individual is requesting for three weeks deferral, but then the passport's going to be expired. Well, that's something to consider. Um, the spousal, well, yeah, okay, There's a, it's been 10 months. There might be a few more months, but... Um, what did IRCC say? What information did they have? Do they expect something? That's something that they need to be looked at. 
Um, there's a whole bunch of the, uh, factors that come in and it's all about how it is presented to the officer. And what, what I try to say to when I do consultations right now is make it in a way that the officer cannot say no. Mm-hmm. If everything is there, if all the details are there, if it doesn't leave room for interpretation, you have a way better chance of getting those granted than not. And it for works sure. the same thing, uh, Steve, when we, when we talk about um, um, deferral, uh, referral to the inadmissibility hearing, the, the A44, yeah. is if you come forward with your, your procedural fairness letter, your response to it, and your documentation that accompanies it, if it's clear there's a plan, there's something put together that makes sense, it's way easier for the officer to side with the possibility of not referring it, maybe issuing a stern warning letter, then something that comes forward and plays victim, someone that comes forward and plays victim, or it's not my fault that I was framed and this and mm-hmm. doesn't show mm-hmm. any remorse, doesn't have a plan for reinsertion, doesn't have anything that shows on the file that will say that he's not going to do that again. On the uh, referral, actually verbally saying it by just not acting. And was that something you saw done at all? Or I might, I might have forgotten about a file or two here and there. In my yeah. And, mm-hmm. you know, I've certainly seen it on the before. corner of the desk. It's, it's possible. Yeah. yeah. It's something that's possible. It might have been a whole bunch of factors. It might have gone to uh, the manager or supervisor after, and that individual didn't agree and yeah. sent it back to the officer to reconsider it might have gotten to the hearings officer who looked at it and like, I don't think we can go anywhere with that. Right. Or yeah. it might have just literally, um, like I said earlier, he, the officer was working on it and then he planned on working on it the next day. And then the next day there is this big born case that showed up and then got sidetracked into this, worked on it. I worked on it for two weeks and then something else happened and then something yeah, else something happened. Else. Yeah. And then yeah. something else happened and then you just lose track of time. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I've had another file that, that happened like that, Steve, where there was a, there was a, you know, a 44 report, there was an allegation and they said that there was going to be a 44 report that, that never, that never arose. Um, and meanwhile, the permanent residence application was pending. And I think that it's just, again, like maybe those submissions eventually, maybe they, they, they kind of, um, they were percolating. <laughs> yeah. And so, uh, and so it just, it did have some effect. And so they're just, it, it, it impacted on the officer's motivation to proceed. <laughs> um, and so the referral just never happened. And yeah. so. That, that's entirely possible because I'm, I'm going to tell you as an officer, there's files that I was assigned to that there's no way I wanted to work on. Yeah. Right. That's you realize, right. you realize the situation that's there. You have a job to do, but you're also a human. You're also a real person mm-hmm. that realizes what's the stake here. And should I really put my energy on this little family that's failed refugees that need to go back? Or should I put my energies on this uh, person who's got a long criminal record? Yeah, yeah that's right. I, you don't, I d- didn't agree with every file that was assigned to me. I worked yeah. them the best to, to the best of my uh, capability. But yeah, not necessarily all the time with a big smile on my face. Are there quotas? Just... No. No. 
I was never given a quota in regards, not like it is in visa offices where you have to approve this amount of files in a day. Yeah. Uh, in regards to removals, I've never seen anybody impose any quotas on me. You know. Going back to the deferral request thing a little bit, which is that um, I've noticed as a practitioner that there's something of a sweet spot in terms of time. Like if I'm requesting a deferral that's three weeks long, it's you know, it's different than requesting a deferral that's three months long. And, you know, like, you know, it's like, you know, when you're kind of pushing, pushing the, the limit in terms of what is a reasonable request. And, and as you said, um, Carl, that um, if it's a request that could very easily end up getting pushed out and pushed out and pushed out you just kind of know that that's one of those things that's going to push the edge of what the officer is going to consider tangible but as you said it sort of um part of it is it is part of it is just about the culture because as you said it's not really about some fixed or rigid rule that this is where that line is. It's kind of a line in the sand. And so I think what it goes back to in the end of the day is just about what the culture is. That's Um, what immigration is. Immigration is not black or white. It's all gray. Mm -hmm. Yes. There's no, there's no black or white. There's no point in immigration where you can say, this is the line. If you cross it, there's something else. There's always interpretation. There's always factors to consider. There's always views, um, depending on your experience as an officer, on the things you've seen, where you come from. Situations are going to be seen differently and interpreted differently. So it's, yeah, it's never black or white. It's completely gray. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. My question think- about this, though, is just, is just what would you, like, how would you describe overall as the culture, like the working culture in, in the, off- the various offices that you've worked on? I mean, I think that you've described the culture as shifting over time. Um, you know, that there was a different culture when you started and it was a group of young students and everyone was kind of happy-go-lucky and it was not a gun culture, it was not an enforcement culture, but I'm kind of interested in maybe even just at the point that you left the department, how would you describe the working culture and the CBSA culture? um, uh, Or the difference between Montreal and Calgary. Yeah, I mean, I'm just interested Um, in some of We hear from the Department of Justice that it's super different in Toronto 
from the way it is uh, in Vancouver? There, I've seen lots of differences between different areas. Um, if you look at uh, the Immigration and Arab Refugee Board from uh, what it was in Montreal than what it was in Calgary, which was the Vancouver division, it's two different worlds. When I showed up in Calgary, um, I, um, I used to write detention notes in an email to um, the hearings officer. And say so these are my notes. This is this is why I think uh, this uh, person should stay in detention. I got to Calgary and I tried to do that, and I was told, "What are you doing? It needs to be on an official statutory declaration that's countersigned by another officer." And I'm like, "What is that?" Right? And there's the same organization across Canada, but two different boards, two different ways of doing things. Yeah. It has leveled out a lot over the years, and I think it was all the same across Canada at the time that I left. But culture, I, I'm not too sure, Deanna, what you're expecting as an answer onto culture. Is, mm-hmm. um, I, I don't think the culture is very different in regards to inline enforcement uh, across Canada. The way that the work is carried out is different. Mm-hmm. But the idea behind it is all the same, right? The outcome or the goal of it is all the same. Right. I've worked in Montreal and Calgary and you know, the, the goal is to uh, remove individuals that need to be removed, is to find uh, individuals in Canada who shouldn't be here and yeah. report them and lead them to the removal process. Yeah. Uh, the way is, it's done was completely different in the two cities. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I always like to say that uh, the Quebec region does whatever they want. Yeah. <laughs> I guess they also what have I'm getting the at... Most, like Quebec must also, they have the most... Um, Maybe I'm wrong on this. My understanding is they have the most people crossing, say, the recent increase in irregular migration seems concentrated in Quebec, whereas we, I think, and again, I could be wrong, uh, there's just less of that out here. Yeah, well, yeah, of course, um, the Roxham Road in Quebec and all of this was, um, there is, if I'm not mistaken, there's over 100 unguarded roads between the U.S. and Canada and the province of Quebec. Yeah. Yeah. I guess what I'm getting at is that from so just my farm roads or country roads, you can just drive up and down and there's nobody, there's no port of entry. Yeah, I was looking at a Google map earlier to figure out which crossing you were at and I thought, wow, that's a lot of roads. Huh. Yeah. And, and Lacole is, uh, is the third, fourth or fifth biggest in Canada. It's the direct route between Montreal and New York City. Yeah. So, but no, it's... Uh, now, in regards to, again, in regards to culture, yeah, Quebec does whatever they want. I, uh, I always gave the example that I showed up in Calgary with uh, polo shirts made, the CBSA and everything that the Office of Inland Enforcement in, in Quebec had purchased off of their own, their own budget, and Calgary wasn't doing that. And they, they, they looked at me like, well, did you get that? How did that work? And that opened some eyes, right? Yeah. Um, but in, in regards to, uh, to how the work is done, even though it might be a little different out on how it is brought forward, I think the outcome is it ends up being the same everywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are some examples? Like, have you had seen scenarios where council is not helping their client or things that council does to the detriment of who they're representing? Oh, yeah. It's like in any kind of work, right? There's shitty people everywhere. So what would be an example of like, like the types of things, not the name of it, um, but like the types no, of like things? I, that... 
you know, I don't have a specific example that comes up, but some sorts like you're sitting in a detention review and the lawyer is going on and on and on about, about the individual and what he's done. And, uh, and the more you listen to him, the more you're like, oh my God, you're painting him as being someone that's completely unreliable. You just stop talking at this point. You're, you know, <laughs> you, you see the face of the earrings officer who's kind of big, has a big smile because she or he's like, well, he just made my case for me. <laughs> right? Or um, very aggressive lawyers that will come in an interview and try to take yeah. over and not let the individual answer questions and try to bully the officer into making a decision. To me, that's, yeah. that's a huge no-no. If you come in, if you used to come in and interview with me as a lawyer, and you try to push me and try to bully me and try and, and raise your voice and try to show that you know more than what I do, it's going to be a long relationship. It's not going to go well. So right? it has I, happened because I, I have wondered, like I've always wondered if there are lawyers who take almost a grandstanding approach in the, uh, in the room. Oh, for sure. Well, there, there are lawyers who want to give a show. Yeah. Absolutely. Everywhere. I've seen some of them in Montreal. I've seen some of those in Calgary. Uh, absolutely. There's lawyers and consultants who want to give a show. There's the ones who, uh, who take it personal if you say no. Right? Who get very emotional in, a, in an interview. It's not their case. They're, and, and I've seen that more on the consultant side than the lawyers. Yeah. But Gary, getting very emotionally involved to the point where tears would come out or voices would be raised and anger would show up and you're like well i haven't said anything wrong here i'm just explaining what the situation is yeah uh this or uh, as you say the grandson someone where the officer's trying to explain something and the uh, consultant lawyer barges in and cuts him off and say oh well yeah that, that's what he means that's what he's trying to say like like wanting to show their client that they know what they're talking about and they're there for them one question I, that uh, an articling student once asked that just came to me was, and it was for, um, I can't remember if it was uh, an interview about working without authorization or the 60-day deferral for a spousal, but it was, will the CBSA officer care if I'm wearing a suit and tie? That's, it's kind of a funny question. <laughs> right? It's the type of thing, though, that I'm sure every lawyer has thought when they go to CBSA for the first time. Do yeah. I need to dress like I'm going to court? Do I, you know, should I be less formal? Like, well, there, 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 <laughs> I'll tell you a story in regards to this. There was a lawyer in Montreal that uh, this, uh, I, I hadn't been doing this for very long and I'd never, I'd never seen this lawyer before. And I'm sitting at the table and I'm asking questions to the, uh, the client. And I'm like, uh, would you like your lawyer to be advised of this? And the guy sitting next to them is like, well, the lawyer's right here. <laughs> but he was there with his hair all over the place, a <laughs> grayish t-shirt, jeans. And I had no clues. I thought, oh, maybe he's a friend of the family that just showed up. No <laughs> idea he was a lawyer. Right? Yeah. So, yeah, it might have a, a little bit of an impact and give a little bit of credibility. But I don't think it's going gonna, it's gonna to change the decision at the end. Yeah. But yeah, that lawyer in a t-shirt was kind of like, oh, no, no, I'm sorry. I didn't know. Yeah. I think that where my question about culture comes from is that, I mean, I certainly have seen um, 
a shift just in the time of my practice, which I'll admit is getting quite, um, I just remember the days, like in the early days when I was like a junior lawyer and going in, there felt like there was a very relaxed and more kind of, um, I don't know. It's just, it's just different. Like when I go in now to, to accompany a client to meet with a removals officer, they're wearing a flak jacket, you know, there's very like the language is like, you're under arrest, you know, and it's like, here's the da da da. And again, it's the same. It's the end of the day. It's the same thing. Like we're still like, um, oftentimes, like I always call in advance, I say, here's my client's intention, they're intending to comply with the terms of their warrant, their intention is to completely like cooperate, you know, so we've said at the very beginning that they understand that there's a warrant out there intending to comply, they're intending to, to be removed. But again, it's just like the culture is that like, and I understand that there are different safety considerations now than there was at the beginning, this was prior to 9-11, when I used to go in. But it's still that in terms of the like client going in, this is a client who's not a criminal risk. This is a client who's a failed refugee claimant walking into the office. Like it's just a different office environment, obviously. And even though some of these interviews may be even happening online, it's still like the language that they're receiving. It might very well be a very young officer, but it's like, it, it's just much more stark, the interview than they used to be, you know, it's not like, hey, I'm real sorry, you know, this is what we have to do. But it's yeah. very like, it feels more like law enforcement. <laughs> well, that's what it is. And I've seen I've seen that that change since, you know, I started that law enforcement in 2009. And I've seen it evolve. Mm-hmm. When, um, you know, in 2009, not all officers were armed. Right, there still was, as I mentioned earlier, for uh, when I started at customs, uh, there's still officers who had been doing that for 25 years and they used to do and not go and knock on doors and uh, do a warrant in a house with just a pair of handcuffs with them, mm-hmm. right? Nothing else. And yeah, the culture has changed in regards to this because CBSA wants to be recognized as a full law enforcement agency. Mm-hmm. So full law enforcement agency, well, there's risk to come coming to that, right? Mm-hmm. So the officers are built into expect the worst, hope for the best, mm-hmm. right? So if you go into um, an interview where there's some sense where there might be an arrest, there might be a confrontation, there might be something, it's policy to wear your tools. Totally. It's um, executing a warrant is not done without tools anymore. Yeah. Uh, anything that's related to criminals, someone that has a criminal record, even though very compliant and willing to cooperate, there's the criminal aspect to it where tools are required. So, so it's it's there has been a shift of culture and that absolutely yes. Yeah. Um, so I, I guess I'm way- lucky in that I've never had a client detained at an investigation or removal interview. What actually happens? Like, is it the officer? Because I know the officers also wear guns. Like, is it the officer who makes the arrest or does security come in? I'm not even talking about where there's a detention. Like, I'm talking about even when there's a full intention to release the person without. Oh, no, I know that's what you're uh, referring to. But just in terms of like, it is a law enforcement culture. Like, how does that actually um, happen in the room? Well, it, it. In regards to an interview, uh, an officer walks into an interview with a 
with an individual that uh, is announced that he needs to leave Canada and will be uh, effective in three weeks and blah, blah, blah. And the, um, the individual says, no, I'm never going to go. I'm not going to leave. Yeah. And but the officer does the arrest. Like in Vancouver, the room like seems like there's barely even room for the CBSA officer to come around the, the table. So the is interviewing there... officer will will uh, do the arrest. Okay. And then proceed the, the the individual to the detention area where everything else will be done. And like, do they call in security? Because oftentimes, like, you know, if there might you might just in terms of the risk of like a scuffle during the arrest, like it's. Uh, well, security, I guess I'm just security. surprised. So security is not going to do anything. Oh, security is not going to do anything. No, security. They're they're the the guards who are there for detention. They're just guards for detention. They're just there to, if something happens, to call an officer. The officer is uh, is the one that will, if there's a fight that ends up, it's the officer that's going to that's going to be uh, involved. So, what did you always make sure that like you outnumber at least the when you're doing. Like I'm just having a hard time visualizing, at least in the layout in Vancouver, because um, I didn't know that that the officer is the one who uh, makes the arrest. Yeah, I've done I've done interviews where there was uh, I was by myself in a room with six people, yeah. but it's a room that's right next to the office. There's other people just outside. There's cameras in the and uh, in, in the room, and so you know it's not something. I, as I said earlier, you. Uh, you expect the worst, but hope for, hope for the best. But you don't show up in there thinking that every single interview is going to end up, you know, in an arrest or in a fight. Yeah. Or else you, we, we'd all have gray hairs after five years. Mm-hmm. But it's, no, it's the, it's the officer that's in charge of the file that takes care of an arrest if it needs to happen. During your time, at, uh, were there arrest that went really like not sideways where like a firearm was drawn but just where a fight breaks out during the arrest or? yeah i've i've uh, i've been into a couple of fights yeah yeah it, it does happen it does happen it's not it's not as much as what it is in regards to uh police corps but but yeah i've seen i've seen some fights yeah but i think maybe that that is part of where this question comes from is that a part of why the culture is what it is is because the risk is greater than it once was. Is that yeah. sort of where, but I mean, I, I guess, I don't know, we're making an assumption. Maybe it's always been like that. And it's just that this, like, I don't know. Um, I, think, I, think, of, I think we're more aware of what the risk is now. Not that yeah. there's, there might not be more risk, right? Bad guys were bad know. guys in the exactly. 80s, the 90s and 2000s, just as much as they are now. We're just more it, aware of it. Now, exactly we're just more ready for it right yeah it's something that's more available and more communicated and you have better understanding and better tools in regards to go against it and what you're saying like in terms of the wearing more tools like um i, I don't know it's it's a tricky one for me because what you're describing in terms of the tools, I totally understand it in terms of when there's an in-person interview. I've been in some of those clogged meetings in that tiny room. Um, and I can understand how, as an officer, you would be quite stressed out in case a, a fight would break out um, and how you would want to be equipped. 
At the same time, I feel that shift in culture, even in online interviews or on telephone interviews sometimes. It's a different atmosphere than it once was when it was a very casual, like, hey, we need you to call in and make these reports, you know, like, here's the travel itinerary. Can we talk about making arrangements? Like, there have been things that have shifted the culture. One of them was... um you know, 9-11, we talked about that from the beginning. The second one was the arming of officers, which as we've said, we're not sure whether or not that was caused by an increase of the risk or just an increase in the tools. The third one was um, the change from as, as soon as reasonably practicable to as soon as possible. Like there are a number of factors that have shifted the way that these interviews are conducted. Um, and for me, it's just hard to know whether or not that shift has come from an actual increase in the risk, or if it's just, you know, that this is now the process and the change in culture. Anyways, I'm just sort of interested about this in general, whether or not um, there is a way of bringing back the kind of civility and the kind of like the casualness of that interaction without losing the safety component for CBSA. I think it's still, well, and, and again, I, I've, I've never done uh, phone interviews or uh, online interviews that's pretty much a after covid thing and yeah I for sure there's COVID, a lot of right? now. Mm-hmm. so I, I i have a hard time trying to figure out how the dynamic of this would go right it's mm-hmm. completely different you get a completely different feeling of having the person sitting across the table from you yeah right um i i saw the shift go but being an officer being in there you don't see it go and change from one day to the other it's gradual, right? Mm-hmm. It, it's always different. It's like, uh, you know, when you meet a friend of yours that you haven't seen in, uh, in, 20, uh, in 10 years and you're like, oh, you've changed a lot. And then his spouse mm-hmm. like, well, not really. He's still the same guy, but you spend every day with this person. So you don't really see it, the drastic change as much as someone who hasn't. So it's, it's kind of the same thing in there. Um, but I, I don't know. I don't know to try to answer. I don't know if it is because there's more risk now. Or just because we we want to think that there's more risk, or it's more publicized that there's risk. It's more common and more known. Uh-huh. And in regards to that, you need to um, oppose that risk by doing something yeah. else, which is the tools, which is the bulletproof vest, which is the arming of the officers. Yeah. Uh, I think it's more that than is there really more criminals now than there was back then, yeah. or do we just know more about it? Yeah. Do the there's officers, certainly more fear, uh, but I don't know if there's yeah. more risk. Yeah. yeah. Do the officers, do you think, want more discretion? So I'll give, an, I'll give an example. And it's actually, I haven't been practicing as long as Deanna, but the only shift that I noticed was when the 60-day deferral of removal for someone with a pending spousal yeah. used to be this uh, tacit understanding of, okay, yeah, the policy says 60 days, but in reality, it's granted for the whole spousal. And there was almost this overnight shift around with the faster removal of foreign criminals act where it was mm-hmm. 60 days becomes 60 days. And the yeah. thing that I noticed was the inland enforcement officers seemed to really dislike that all of a sudden it was 60 days and they didn't have at least an automatic ability to do mm-hmm. the whole period of the spousal. It seemed like it still happened mm-hmm. here and there. And the other thing I noticed was that the officers it was funny, like CBSA wound up 
advocating to IRCC to say, hey, process this file faster. And I used they to They used to do that. I, well, I, I still find, I mean, I haven't I've had done it, it since I've, COVID. I've asked CBA, I've asked the IRCC. To but I used to joke with uh, yeah. clients that the fastest I, I way haven't to been get able your, to get somebody to do that. I haven't been able to get somebody to do that for oh, months. I used to joke, well, not since COVID for me, but I used to joke oh. with clients that the fastest way to get a spousal processed was to be in Canada without status so that you had CBSA almost acting as your advocate. So like that shift in CBSA, was it also... But if you look at this, the the changes in that is that as a CBSA officer, you can see when there's, you know, a base to a spousal application that in 60 days, well, right now I'm trying to effectuate a removal, but then we have a 60-day policy. So we'll put the 60-day policy in effect, but well, please give me an answer within 60 days because I'm not going to spend time and energy on no. after the 60 day working on a removal to come to a point where there might be a deferral request and then there might be something else. And then arrangements and tickets are booked and sure. flights are ready. And then All while you're just waiting for IRCC to make the determination that you could pretty much make within a few and minutes of meeting And then three days before the yeah. spousal comes up and like, oh yeah, it's positive. We cancel everything. I know. So people have spent a lot of money. People have lost a lot of energy and time on totally. this. Whereas, well, why not? Right? Why didn't we? Couldn't you have given us an answer two weeks prior to that? A hundred percent. Yeah, and I mean, I think it's one thing with the sixty the people that are eligible for the sixty day deferral, but people failed refugee claimants that don't qualify for it mm-hmm. at all. Um, those are the ones that really like break my heart because they don't. They don't qualify for it because they already have a removal order against them and they're getting removed and they need ARCs and they're being removed to countries where the VACs are closed. There's no ability for them to get their biometrics done, all this kind of stuff. And I'm finding that like CBSA officers are not getting on the phone and calling IRCC to say what's happening with that spousal application. And uh I mean, I had one officer say that a big thing that like in the same way that we had noticed that Mississauga was bouncing a lot of them, it became difficult for CBSA to know, like, is the spousal going to be returned? Yeah, Um, for sure. And then what are we kind of like stuck with at CBSA? But this is even in cases where like they're giving approval, they've already approved in principle, the not approved in principle, the application, but they've approved the spouse, the sponsorship, they're now making medical requests that they won't be able to complete in the, anyways, I understand, like, I know that these are complicated and all that kind of stuff, but it's just, um, yeah, and, it's and- a spirit of collaboration that I, I used to be able to see that I just, I feel like it's part of the general attrition that's like, you're changed, you used to do this stuff, and now you don't, you know? Like- yeah, not, not to make excuses for that, but I know I, yeah. I, do, I do agree that there was more of a collaboration point at yeah. one time years ago. Yeah. Um, I, I think that the pressure that's put on the officers now in regards to risk and criminals and everything so prioritize those files Uh and the workload that the officers are given brings to a point where if the officers had to contact IRCC on every single case that there's an outstanding application for something they'd spend half their day doing that yeah but that's what I'm getting at in terms of the working culture. I'm not blaming the frontline officers. I'm getting at the fact that it's like an overall workplace culture where they're oh, yeah. under too much pressure. Um, and that like, I'm not saying that the officers are less, they have less humanity. I'm saying that they like, they're under immense pressure, you know, that the 
that it's a top down issue that like, you know, yeah, you it's have not to the individual that has changed no, no, no. the organization. It's the organizational culture yep. and yep. the mandate of the organization. They're being told like it's not they didn't make the decision to say it's as soon as possible. That was a legislative decision that was made and they're just administering the act. So I'm not faulting the officers. It's not on them. A lot of them don't like that. It's just what they're told they have to do, right? It's so, so funny, Deanna, because like this is such a like it's such an example of how your perspective on things totally depends in a way on oh where God. you start. Because like I started 2011 and 12 or 10 was when I got called. So it's like maybe you know collaboration was up here before, and when I started was at a low. Oh, for sure. And now it's slightly better. So I'm like, hey, things are improving. But yeah. compared to what you saw before, it's probably still very oh for sure. Different. So and it's, it's such an just... interesting like thing on perspective and just when for you start... sure. And when you make a decision as an organization to go from as soon as reasonably practicable to to as soon as possible, all of a sudden you're telling all those inland officers that you can't put this at the bottom of your to do list. That has to also be at the top. And then it's kind of like, well, you're telling all those inland officers that it's not enough to say, okay, well, I'll deal with those once I've dealt with the really serious cases. You're telling them that this has to be dealt with now. And you're making all those officers crazy because they can't say, well, this is not a case I need to chase right now. Well, the federal court is especially like the federal court of appeal, especially is uh, driving a lot of the strictness, it seems. Absolutely. And so it's sort of like there's no like I'm not. I'm not pointing my finger at like at the at the at the officers because like again it's 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 made mandatory by the act. I'm just saying that like as a um as an overall kind of uh, strategic planning decision by the by the department at the highest level. It just it's a bit crazy making um as an organizational mandate, because it's sort of like what Chantal said in our podcast yesterday, that if everything is urgent, then nothing really can be. And that it's, mm-hmm. it's kind of contaminated the kind of the whole culture um, of the organization. And it's meant that things can't properly be prioritized in a way that's about what is the most important in terms of removals and in terms of like, what is the most important removals to be able to execute? It's really just everything has to be done right away. <laughs> yeah, and what I've seen over the years is that it, what is the flavor of the day as well, right? Mm-hmm. What is in the news? Well, lay the last two years, what's in the news is those uh, individual crossing at illegal crossing in in Quebec, right? So mm-hmm. that a lot of emphasis is being put on those cases. Uh, we've had times where it, I remember some years, not exactly the year where headquarters in Ottawa impose targets on removals to offices where you had to reach a certain amount of, tar- of removals by the end of the year. And you're saying, like you're saying, Deanna, that was putting a lot of pressure on the officers because I remember doing seven or eight interviews in an eight-hour shift Oof. in order to initiate pro or give a pro decision or make removal arrangements just because by end of March, we needed to reach 1500 removals wow Which and then when you the look at the, at the time didn't agree with it yes exactly and then when you look at the overall mandate of the act like it's i understand that it's supposed to be about removal of those who don't have the correct status but there is also the overall humanitarian mandate of the act. And it's very difficult to reconcile when you have these multiple purposes, right? Because there's also like when you're looking at the 
you know, the refugee mandate and our international commitments. Like, I understand that it is an enforcement issue that people are coming at non-recognized crossings, but there's also like, sometimes people are entering, you know, they're, you know, there's a lot of intersecting issues here. I think a lot of it comes to, again, to the Federal Court of Appeal. So I read an interesting memo to the minister that I got through an access to information on the IRCC side. And it basically said, look, minister, we want flexibility in when we return applications. But there's this Federal Court of Appeal decision, which says that there aren't, they aren't even applications, there's little flexibility can be given. So we can't do anything. And I sat there thinking, that was your like, you guys won that case. And it seems to have like, you're the arguments that you made kind of took on a life of their own. And I've kind of wonder if it's sometimes the same at CBSA where they get a decision where they're arguing that the decision to not defer was reasonable and the federal court and the federal court of appeal come out with this. There should be very little discretion. The priority needs right. to be removal. If the you know, legal team at CBSA then reads that and all of a sudden it just takes on a life of its own. That, that right. was a favorite quote to write in the response to the deferral request, right? There was a couple mm. of federal court decisions that says, well, the officer has limited discretion and this. Right. Yeah. So to quote that was easy. And, but the right. you were saying about the uh, humanity and the, the job right now. I have a friend of mine who used to work when it was back when it was CIC. And mm-hmm. then transferred over to inline enforcement with CBSA. And for him, the humanity of the officer disappeared the day that they separated the enforcement right. branch from CIC. Right. Yeah, we hear it's that like a lot. They just split them up and like CBSA, you're gonna be the bad guys enforcing this and removing right. people. And then IRCC will be the nice guys who approves files or right. you know, not necessarily nice guys, but they just walk away from having to make any harsh decision and sending someone over. And that friend was saying exactly that. He says to me, he says it died that day. We I moved see. from one organization that did both to two organizations that did completely two separately. I understand. Separate things. And that's how it was from, the, from then on. So yeah. this kind of brings us full circle. Like ultimately, if an inland officer had full autonomy and this these mandates and this limited discretion weren't an issue and you got your it, you got to pick which cases you were going to enforce without these strict mandates and with a really fulsome discretion you would be able to be like I'm going to start with the you know and I'm being I'm sort of being caricaturish but like yep. you would start with the bad guy you know and you would work your way down based on the severity of the reason for which somebody had been um, ordered removed um and that's how you would triage your caseload but basically um the the removal of that kind of discretion has prevented you from doing that and made it sort of like every case is treated as if they were the same so that the reasons for the removal are kind of irrelevant and it's just a removal is a removal is a removal and the discretion is limited um, yeah, but it also to a point where it's um, it has taken away the pick and choose part, which is right. to me was not a bad thing because yeah, I see people just you know work one file a week because they wanted to work only after that big high profile yeah. case that was on a warrant, right? 
Right. Um, there's, there's, and, but also it goes to the point as well where you have the opposite argument that, you know, when an officer makes a recommendation for um, a permanent resident to be going to the disability ring based on criminality, well, you got the argument from the other side, from lawyers, from clients that, well, does the officer has the capability of doing so? Because, you know, in certain situations, when it gets to the admissibility hearing, the, um, the board member doesn't have a choice. Uh, the, were you convicted of this? Yes. Well, yes. here's your deportation yeah. order. There's no discretion in there. So I've had discussions with lawyers where they say, well, should the officer be allowed to make that decision to refer that? Do they have the capacity to do so? But then we want them to go to the other side and be able to make the decision on any kind of deferral and grant indefinite deferrals or for any reasons, whenever they feel like it. So right. they, there's no middle to this, right? I see. That, that's part of why it is the way it is, is that you need to have some kind of a frame around everything so it doesn't go overboard and doesn't go... Yeah. There must also be the risk of like... As you focus, you know, if that officer is focusing for that one week on arguably what's the most important file, that case file in the backlog is just increasing with what I guess you can call the low hanging fruit. Um, I just remember one of my one of the one of the so one case that I argued at the very beginning of my career. Um, it's a decision that was um, rendered by Mr. Justice Van Finkenstein. And I remember one thing that he said about the way that this case was decided. This was by an IRCC officer was that he said it's just these words that he said was that nothing mandates that IRCC decide this case in a mindless or robotic fashion. And I just love these words because it's almost like there's nothing that ties IRCC officers to making their decisions in a mindless and robotic way. But I feel like in some ways that liberty hasn't really been fully granted to CBSA officers in some ways. I feel like they, in a, in a, um, I feel like they have been forced in a lot of ways in the enforcement um, environment to make more mindless and robotic decisions because the limit that because their discretion has been so limited in so many ways that there is like it 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 allow like that you know there's this saying in law school that like tough cases make for a bad law and I just feel like it's it's in this in the in the enforcement scheme the rigidity of the enforcement scheme has made it impossible for inland enforcement officers to make mindful, humane, like reasonable decisions a lot of the time. I don't know if you feel that way or if I've kind of gone overboard in terms of how I've stated it. Well, when I say, when I said earlier that uh, in immigration, it's not black or white, it's always gray, right? Yeah. Um, the, the thing with it is that I think the way that they condition officers is to be black or white. Right. They want them to be black or white, but Everybody else around that sees it as great. So it's really hard as an mm, officer to be able to be straight on a decision, but considering all the factors around, but knowing that there's a fine line that you need to follow because you, you don't have the possibility of going any further than this, right? There's there's yeah. no way there's no way for a CBSA in line enforcement officer to grant an indefinite deferral of removal. Yeah. Besides not working the file and leaving it in the corner, but it's always hanging there. It's always standing there. It's not, it's not over. Right. It's just neglected. It's just it's, 
Yeah, they just exactly. fail to exercise their jurisdiction as opposed to exercising it in a reasonable way. <laughs> exactly, which can come back to bite them at once. Exactly, that's right. Right, I've, had, I've seen people having to answer uh, on cases where uh, a file was sitting on a desk for a year on a removal case and it wasn't done. And then this person committed a serious crime. Could yes, this have been avoided? Yes, wow. it could have been avoided. Right. But that's, yes, of course, we we have to react to this. Right. That's something and, big to carry for that person that really yeah. it's a and lot the of CBSC, like the CBSC to me is is a wow. And they they're a reactionary organization. Of course, they don't plan. They don't make plans expecting something to happen. They just wait for it to happen and react. Well, that puts a really interesting perspective on, you know, there have been a lot of calls for a better accountability system within the CBSA, like within the department. And really, you very, you very helpfully characterize where the accountability issue comes, you know, because it's sort of like you're kind of... Um, I don't know, it, it creates a real conundrum for an inland officer because um, they're kind of shoehorned into like, that's their only choices, you know, that they that, 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 that the personal accountability of like either you enforce or you carry this personal responsibility of not enforcing. And then it's your own, like, are you acting then as an agent of CBSA? Are you acting in your own personal capacity and not exercising your jurisdiction properly, which is like a, you know, um, just looking at um, that accountability factor, because um, there might be personal liability even there for not executing your role in the way that you're mandated by law to do so. Like, that's, that's a lot. And to me, this comes from the law enforcement part of it, right? Is this yes, for a police of officer that if you know where this guy is and you're supposed to go arrest him and you decide that you're not going because you don't feel like it. Yeah. And then he turns around and he's on the news the next day because he murdered someone. No, you in know, the media, CBSA inland enforcement, often you, they can't win. They're either, oh my goodness. you know, they didn't remove someone and it's, well, yeah. how did this person just commit a crime? Or they're the heartless department that is about to remove someone wow. following the law and the minister gets uh-huh. to swoop in and issue the TRP and, as yeah, if and, saying, and see, my here, officer. Right? Wow. Yeah. And like, it's just, you know, I can imagine that being frustrating. Wow. And my biggest issue with all of this for the whole time I was with CBSA, and I don't know how many times I've told my supervisor or my assistant director or whoever wanted to listen to us, is that CBSA doesn't stand for themselves. Yeah. And they, they put it all under the privacy part. Yeah. Oh, we're not going to discuss a specific file because of privacy. Right. And we're not going to discuss our politics and say our policies and see how they go. So we're just going to look like bad guys, regardless of what happens. Mm. Yeah. I've right. always wondered that with how the Privacy Act interacts. Like if someone's going to the media and telling a story that's not accurate, the response from government is always privacy concerns. We can't yep, comment. They won't, but there they is won't this. They won't it's kind of like judges, how judges can get criticized and they're not really yeah. allowed to respond. No, exactly. CBSC um, won't respond to any of it. They'll just sit there and take the shot and then show the other cheek and then keep going like this. Yeah. Right. Wow. There, there would be so many times where they could have just said one thing outside, right. Just to set the record straight, just to look better, to make the officer look better. Right. But no. That, right. That, that was I not see. Happen. It's like you're on your own. 
bucko like you know that wow that's very fascinating um it sounds like a very alienating kind of experience so i think you've really really answered that question yeah. of culture <laughs> yeah. um i think i have a very clear picture it's actually um helped me in terms of being able to empathize with that perspective of of what what those officers are facing um you know from that perspective the uh just in looking at the time i want to go back to what you're doing now so you help people mm. you're helping lawyers like lawyers consultants individuals or mainly well anyway who the client base is but what you're uh with deferral requests as well as a 44 i don't know how to describe it do not oh, refer. I, i've done i've done a bunch of different uh consultations over the last uh a little bit more than a year. Yeah, it can be on deferral request. My expertise is in regards to enforcement. Yeah. Right. But as so do you do CPA, interview prep as well? Like uh, where you um, help, yeah. uh, where you get yeah, retained? Yeah, that's something yeah. that I've uh, been brought for, brought up to uh, to help with. I've helped with a couple of procedural fairness letters. I've helped with deferral requests. I've helped with um, putting forward packages for marriage fraud or denunciations of certain situations. Cessation? Uh, I've also, uh, you know, in regards to uh, someone that wants to bring forward to CBSA that uh, someone gained access to Canada uh, by frauding mm -hmm. on their marriage. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I've helped build uh, some of those cases. Um, I've also helped work on a few applications that go to IRCC because as a CBSA officer, even though I've not really made any decisions on those, I've seen so many, I've read so many, I've seen so many people being removed after making those applications and reading this decision has brought me to know what was missing. So I've helped lawyers and consultants review some of those files in regards to um, outstanding sponsorships, uh, see what, what the officer would see when they get that package, what is missing, what could be added to this um, uh, it could also be in regards to detention. I've uh, probably been involved in three, two, three, four hundred uh, detention uh, reviews in in my career that I've written notes for. So I I have a certain expertise in that. So anything that's regarding an, uh, immigration enforcement, those are things that I can bring, come forward and bring advice for. Um, who I deal with is directly with lawyers. So um, because I'm not registered as a consultant or registered as a lawyer, I cannot have clients directly and build files and give advice to the to clients directly. Yeah. Do you work with consultants so, as well? Uh, I've not worked with, uh, with immigration consultants yet, just because I haven't had that chance, but I would, right? Yeah. yeah um, there's quite a few what, who listen to this. So. Yeah. I'm hired by firms and consultants to help them out. So what they do is they, they bring me in and I have a look at the file and give them my opinion. Give uh, like on the deferral request, I'll see, well, as an officer, here's what I would respond to this. Here's what you could work on. Same thing on the procedural fairness letter for admissibility hearings. So, yeah. And how do people contact you? Uh, they can contact lawyers. Me, how do lawyers uh, and consultants contact you? They can contact me by email at my email, which is cb dash advising services at outlook.com yeah or phone number they can call me directly my cell phone is always open and i'll return calls and 
Uh, I can leave the phone number here, or if you want to post it on your uh, on the site where the podcast is, it's uh, it's up to you. But phone number is 587-226-3870. And they can reach out to me and, and that function as well. And I'll be glad to let them know if I can be of any help. Amazing. Yeah, that sounds uh, really fascinating, Carl. This has been really, really interesting. No, it was fun. It's uh, and and you know, and it's something that I've always wanted with CBSA is to be able to reach out to the public and let them know what an inline enforcement officer is. What does the CBSA do? And you know, how how can you avoid having to be in front of an enforcement officer? Right. Um, yeah. I always said that CBSA should have an outreach program where they go to communities and explain to new immigrants what, what the Immigration Act is, what, way, what they could face if they do certain things, right? If they commit crimes, even though you're a permanent resident, do you know you could lose your permanent residency and be removed? For sure. And there's none of this that is done. I know that Calgary Police does it in Calgary. And I tried to piggyback at one point on their program to say, hey, Maybe once you do those outreach, CBS could come in and give a 30 minutes presentation and just let them know. And it just died there with CBSA because it needed to be an idea that came out from Ottawa, not from this little guy in the, <laughs> in the middle of the city of Calgary. Right. Mm. So it, yeah, it has never gone there. Bureaucracy. So, yeah. And so that's one thing when I, when I love the CBSA that I'm like, you know what, I've got some knowledge that I can put forward and help out in different situations. I, Again, I can't go directly to the immigrants themselves, but what's the closest person to them in regards to their files is the consultants, is the, the, the lawyers. And mm-hmm. I can come forward and help those guys out. I have a better understanding of what, what is needed and what it is. Well, it sounds like a really valuable service. Well, it's been fun. It's been working uh, Excellent. here and there. It's not something that I do full time, but hey, if it gets to that, it gets to that. Great. Yeah. No. Thanks. Uh, thanks. Uh, thanks for coming on. I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, thank we'll you so much for touch. joining. Yes, no problem. Definitely. Thanks for having me. Uh, thanks for having me on. And it was uh, it was fun. It was a good time. And uh, good. Uh, you guys enjoy the day. And uh, good luck with the podcast. I think it's a great idea. Yeah. Excellent. Thanks. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues 
your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait, is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher.